Are you fed up with printing exercise programmes? Or horror, drawing them? Solve every exercise prescription issue you can think of using Rehab My Patient. Thousands of pictures and videos of every movement you can dream up. Send by email or WhatsApp, translate into different languages at the click of a button. Don't take our word for it. Sign up for a three-month free trial now. Just go to rehabmypatient.com forward slash physiomatters. Hi all, welcome to Chewing Over High Performance, hosted by myself, Nicola Graham. I'm really pleased to introduce you to our first guest of this new show, Fiona Swenny. Fiona started her career clinically as a physiotherapist while serving in the British military as an army officer. She's also spent time with England Rugby, as well as the Royal Ballet School, where she was involved in setting up their first health and human performance unit. After undertaking an MBA, Fiona has moved to some more corporate and commercial roles. These were with digital tech startups, as well as larger organizations like Holland and Barrett, and more recently UCL and NHS on digital innovation. Fiona is a keen sportswoman herself, and her husband is the medical director of McLaren F1. And so all in all, when you take into account her clinical, academic and real world perspective, I feel she's really well experienced to discuss this overarching topic with me today on high performance. I connected with Fiona a couple of years ago on LinkedIn when I was looking for other physiotherapists who had undertaken an MBA. And so I'm really pleased to welcome her as this first guest. So going straight into the show, Fiona, how do you believe healthcare, military and sport performance compares? First of all, thanks very much for having me on, Nicola. And for me, whilst there are differences and nuances across all of them, I think human performance is underpinned by human resiliency and sustainability. And by that, I mean ensuring that your workforce, um, your team, the team surrounding the team all have the ability to perform consistently um, over a given period of time. And I think in the current world we live in, where if particularly if we look at a corporate environment, you know, there's so many demands on individuals that being able to maintain a constant level of performance, we really need to attend to that as, as leaders and as managers and ensure that we're putting in some practices to ensure that our, our employees or the people in, under our leadership are able to consistently perform to their best ability. That's great. And so when you think about the experience that you've then had across different sectors and organisations, are there things that jump out that you think, I learned loads in that experience or I never want to repeat that. Are there some kind of common themes that you've noticed throughout, especially when you're talking about kind of different sectors and different industries as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think my time to the military, uh, my time in the military really um, embedded some lessons around human sustainability and resilience for me. I think about the times when we deployed in operations, either myself or, or people around me how the military are able to maintain a high level of training um, in the preceding months ahead of a deployment, the time during uh, deployment. But what they're really good at is giving the personnel time um, after a deployment um, to really spend the time with their families, if they've got them, spend their time with their friends, recuperating before they go again. You know, the military have got a really good culture of if there's nothing to do, you get knocked off work. And I think pretty much throughout most of my time in the military, I don't think I ever worked a Friday afternoon. Uh, and I, I bring those lessons into my corporate career now. You know, I, I'm very much of, a, of, of an opinion that I build a team 
uh, with high levels of trust um, and a lot of honesty and openness. And if somebody says to me, um, I finished all my work, um, I need a little bit of time off, um, I'm going to go for a run, I'm fully supported, supportive of it. I think in this current culture we are where we've got access to our emails 24-7, you know, we need to be really uh, transparent, but also as leaders give people almost permission to say, hey, I'm just going to take two hours out to go and play some golf, go for a bike ride, do whatever I need to do. And again, I think I've taken those lessons from the military um, throughout that active rest is an essential part of maintaining high performance. Yeah, really interesting concept from that point, because the things that I read and I suppose see about it's it's not so much like the stress, like really we can deal with stress and we're, I suppose, evolutionary designed to deal with stress and um, the ability to then recover afterwards is then what allows us to kind of go again rather than be on 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 all the time are there um like so for you personally what are what are those recovery what are those rest times and what do they look like for me personally it's time in nature um and uh doing something more mindful like i have to say i've recently taken up golf i like i can't believe i'm actually saying that i never thought i would do it but what i realized is my outlet always used to be running and cycling but what I've discovered is potentially my career has got more challenging in terms of uh, demands on my time. I've realized that I need something to really take my mind off work. And and when I was running, I was ruminating. And so I <laughs> took to golf and I have to concentrate very hard to connect that stick with that tiny little ball. <laughs> so what's your um, what's your handicap at now? Um, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> My handicap is that I've spent 20 years running and, and doing triathlon and not hitting a ball. So we'll get there. So that kind of describes, I suppose, like different phases maybe of when things are, our ability kind of, I suppose an element of that around longevity and self-awareness and knowing, listening to your body as to what it needs at different times, but not just your body, your mind as well. So do you, just out of interest, do you use a wearable? Do you track it or is it purely kind of self-awareness and how you I track feeling? my sleep. For me, that's yeah. the most important thing um, because I've recognized now that, you know, I can be in bed for eight hours, but if I haven't had enough um, REM or deep sleep, then I will feel tired. And I've started to identify the, the things and the actions I take that will improve that and those that are detrimental to it. Um, I've stopped drinking alcohol because I think that's had the biggest effect on my on my sleep um but I'm also quite conscious now to switch off from work at least an hour an hour and a half before before I go to bed and actually that's one thing I I do encourage within my teams and when I was a digital health leader at Holland and Barrett they had this set up automatically but I don't send emails to my team after working hours I'll put a delay send on it so even if I'm working I don't expect them to receive emails and work and I, I often, you know, quite often people will put on their signature block. I work unusual hours. I don't expect you to respond. But I would I would challenge that and say, if someone's receiving emails at 10 o'clock at night from you, do you really expect them not to even notice or or mm. have some sort of physiological response to that? Yeah, I that was a pretty um, pivotal moment for me, finding schedule to send on yeah. emails. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. And, and part of it was, a part of it, I think is um, being respectful of other people's time and space, most definitely. But I think part of it for me was also, I wanted to know I'd responded, but I didn't want to receive a response back as well, because I, I was like, 
finishing my work for the evening, knowing I'd replied on my side, but I didn't then want a conversation back and forth over it. So it was like, yeah, do it in the evening for me. And again, I suppose an element of that is around flexibility of your time and when you can work. Absolutely. Um, but I didn't, yeah, I definitely didn't want to receive a response back that evening about it either. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, uh, I think those little tips, and, and so I suppose an element that I just alluded to that I think is really important there and that you've touched on a couple of times there is around this self-awareness and how you develop over time to know what, are, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And that's got to be an element that allows for a sustained and longevity within performance and careers. Do you agree? I do agree. And I, it's not a term I've heard before, but I, I call it digital presenteeism. And and I think that as leaders, you know, and potentially as more senior members of the organisation you're in, you may have to work those longer hours, but not everybody does. And being mindful of that um, and leading by example absolutely has got to be at the forefront of your mind. So... Early in your career, you when you were working in sport, you set up a high-performance centre, is that right, with the ballet? Yeah, I had a really fantastic opportunity. Um, the Royal Ballet asked me to, as you say, set up um, a human performance centre, and that was a great culmination of my clinical career. I was able to draw in the, my experiences from the British Army and uh, England rugby, and I was given pretty much a blank canvas. Uh, we raised a million pounds in order to implement the the, the program. Um, and that's where I really was able to start to think, uh, combine my clinical experience more with a business perspective. Because whilst we weren't a revenue generating organization, you know, we had stakeholders, we had shareholders. Um, we had to make sure that the program was sustainable from a financial perspective. Uh, and I wanted to ensure that it was all very much data-driven, which was also my first foray into the world of digital healthcare. Amazing. Um, and talking about then longev longevity, does that centre still exist? It does still exist uh, and it's grown. And uh, the lady who took over from me uh, is doing an amazing job. And I've watched uh, the developments in the programme uh, over the past past few years um, and I feel really proud that I laid the foundations for that to happen. And the, again, the important things that I, I believe that, that were set up and established at the outset was, as I said, um, a system to enable them to be really data-led and very much a scientific and evidence-based approach, which in the world of performing arts was relatively new at the time that we did that. And how long ago was that? Oh, crikey. Um, this always makes me feel old when we talk about things like this. I think that was around 20... 16, 2015, 2016. So if you were going to set that up again today with yep. the more experience, more knowledge, different organisations that you've worked with, what would it look like now? How oh, that's a really great question because I often think about that. I think the primary difference, and this is where my my MBA education and then my subsequent corporate career um, have, have fed into my thoughts about it, the Royal Ballet School was a charity, essentially. Yes, they did get some fees from some students who were able to pay, but essentially it was a charity. So the financial sustainability of, of, of that human performance program was always reliant on donors. And I look back now and I think, if I'd known what I'd known now, what I would have done if it had been acceptable to, to the charitable donors and the board was to set up a parallel program which could have been commercialised for the global um, pre-professional dance community. 
and and I and I look back at it now and I think they're very sort of quick, well not that quick, but potentially relatively low tech ways of doing that with existing tech platforms. And actually that would have been the biggest change I would have made. Have you suggested it over to them? I have actually. <laughs> Well, that'll be exciting if that kind of comes in because obviously that's that element of, I suppose for me, the same kind of concept around leadership really is sometimes things around performance, things around leadership only come in at like later stages of maybe careers or things that you're thinking about because sometimes you're embedded within the kind of the technical, the day-to-day. Um, and I think having, we, we had um, nine British Army officers on my MBA as well. And the leadership concepts that they brought in, it's just embedded from day one of your career, regardless of rank. So it's not a hierarchical aspect. It's it's more of a culture. And I personally never felt that way when I worked in the NHS and also some other kind of SME organizations. It was more leadership is um, is something that management deal with and it wasn't something that kind of flowed throughout and and I suppose I have the same kind of feeling nowadays around performance that it's not just doing the job but how are we doing it how are we measuring it what does that look like and and what's what's an individual kind of person as well as organizational philosophy around performance how do you kind of resonate or what thoughts have you had with that when you look back or I suppose or reflect on different careers and organizations that you've worked in yeah yeah and I think my career has probably started about 25 years ago where data-led decisions were much harder to come by than 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 they are now and I think you make a very interesting point there about you're looking at the resilience and the health of the organization versus the health and resilience of that individual and um, over time I think the biggest note, the biggest change is that organizations now do have that access to that information should they choose to uh, access it. And in human performance environments and sporting environments, you know, they're ahead of the curve there. The military are are absolutely getting there. You know, they're a big organization. Um, But I think the people who are lagging lagging behind are the corporate organizations. You know, it's very easy to... um, create a nod towards we're looking after employee well-being and resilience by throwing employee assistance programs at at staff, which is fantastic. But where are the measurables? How are you measuring this? You know, what's shifting the needle? Um, And again, looking at the health of of a workforce versus the health of an individual. I do think we've got a little bit of of, um, a way to go with that. Um, But the tools are there. And, but equally, as HR managers or people responsible for that, do they necessarily have the knowledge they need in order to to promote or, or implement new strategies? And 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 figure, do you have kind of an opinion on is it well being? Is it performance? Is it I actually something I came across recently on reading around athleticism, like as in should we actually use the word athlete more than we do in just a sport context? That actually anyone that's striving for a goal could be classed as an athlete. I hear the word corporate athlete a fair bit being being thrown around. Does it make me slightly cringe a little bit? I, th- I think it does because, you know, we, we've talked about performance being accessible to everybody. And I assume, I don't know for certain, there are not a lot of people out there who wouldn't consider themselves athletes and maybe don't want to be called athletes. So I think, you know, labels sometimes are useful, not always. And I 
think if people want to feel like that, great, you know, let's support them, but let's not put anybody off. And in terms of the intersection between well-being and performance, I mean, I, I think most people would agree that they are inextricably linked. You know, look at the foundations of performance. It's sort of good good sleep, you know, good nutrition, um, et cetera. And you can't, I don't think you can have one without the other. Well, potentially you can, but that performance gains will be short-lived. And and I think it, it, well, it can either go two ways, couldn't it? It could be short-lived in a negative way or short-lived in a burnout. It, you went too hard too fast. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I suppose that kind of, again, comes back to that individualization of what it is and what, um, and what, what performance can mean to an individual, but also that individual organization as well. And I think, you know, having this conversation is making me think about what really has changed over the past sort of 20, 25 years that I've been working in this space. And I think it's the nod to the sort of psychological and the mental health side of things. You know, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have heard any sports person talking about their mental health. And now that conversation seems to be coming out more and more. But again, you know, we don't want to be talking about it when it gets to crisis point. So what is it that we need to put in place to recognise that our organisation, whether that's the sporting team, military, corporate organisation, you know, how do we test the, the, the health of, of that workforce or that sports team and identify those people at risk uh, at an early stage? Yeah, so that's much more kind of a preventative, proactive, which I suppose comes down to then what are the systems, what are the processes in place yeah, but also recognising that there are periods of time which are going to be highly stressful and not to shy away from that. And again, I, I've got two children and I feel that there is potential that we, we, we look after our children who are the workforce of the future, trying to protect them from stress. Whereas actually stress is a normal part of life. There are times in work, in competition, in the military where things are going to be highly stressful. We need to prepare our workforce, prepare the workforce of the future by building that resilience in them, not taking away that stress. I, I agree. And, and I've got two children the same and, and they have a lovely life, I feel. But I'm like, I don't want it to be too nice, if that makes sense to some degree as well. And I suppose that was my kind of like slight hint or thought around the well-being side sometimes I think it's how can we take away stress and make everything and again I'm going to use the term nice but I don't mean it from that perspective but yes we don't want because it is around the recovery not around the stress it, the research seems to be indicating towards so so yes, we need to kind of prepare. Maybe that comes down to language, communication from a leadership point of view that, yes, we are going into a high stressful time. This is what's going to happen. So you're setting the expectation of what it is, but we will then debrief afterwards. We will, there will be an end point. There will be a point that we can pause and reflect and learn from that and then go again with hopefully that feedback and that knowledge going forward. But those must be really common concepts to yourself. They're very common concepts. And um, in the military, they like the term after action review. Um, and I feel that quite often, maybe it's from having a clinical or physio background. If you say the word reflection to people, quite a lot of people will shudder and say, oh, I don't want to do that because they might have some poor experiences from early in their clinical careers. 
Um, so yeah, I've worked in an organisation. I said, well, can we rename this reflection as an after-action review? You know, it's a, you know we're using action word there. It's it feels more positive. It feels more looking forward. Um, and I do think they're incredibly valuable. And um, it gives people to get it gives people the opportunity to get things off their chest. Um, it gives an, a forum for people to say how can we do things better. And if managed well, it gives people the opportunity to give open and honest feedback. But in order to do it effectively, I think you need to create those that environment of psychological safety, um, which is, again, is not to completely go off tangent, because I think we could talk for, for hours on that topic alone. But you need to ensure that that if you're building a team, you're in a team, you've got that psychological safety to enable people to have those honest and open conversations. Yeah, most definitely. But I think an element of that is around critical conversations as well um, of and I think this is definitely a point that's taken some time for me to get to and and probably actually I would say my MBA was an, a big element of that of that that difference between kind of I suppose being liked and respected um, but also that receiving that feedback isn't personal or if it is around something you did personally it's coming from a good place for a positive development um because i i I don't feel we're good and in a more general around having critical conversations and having and and that not not becoming quite personal and um and and not seeing the bigger picture of why why are we having this conversation rather than what does what does it actually contain I'm nodding and smiling a lot because relatively recently, towards the end of last year, um, I under, uh, underwent some feedback training and I was a little unsure what it was all going to be about, but it was incredibly helpful. We did a lot of role play around how to deliver effective feedback, you know, not finger pointing sort of, and really carefully considering ahead of time the conversation you want to have, but without it being premeditative. And um, it, again, it makes me think about my, my MBA. It, you know, and as physios, I do think having a clinical background, we are well equipped to do this. You know, when I was on my MBA, they talked a lot about the soft skills that that a lot of people don't have in business. But I think that as physios and clinicians, we have so many of these transferable skills. You know, we're used to getting to the bottom of problems. You know, someone will walk in and, and say, I've got a sore knee, but actually you uncover that the, their problem isn't their sore knee. It's it's much bigger. It's like a Pandora's box. And I think we're used to that as clinicians and bringing the, that that experience and those soft skills uh, into different environments should should never be underestimated. Yeah, I I agree. There were times, um, especially the module for me was was it called organizational behavior or organization? Yeah, organizational behavior. And they started talking about reframing things. And um, and basically I was like, this is like working as a physio with differential diagnosis and you're working on different hypotheses and, and then you're gathering the information, working out. And I was like, this, it will, I, I completely agree around that transferable skills. It's it, it's quite eye-opening when you then, because I think you can become quite technical in your role um, when you are a clinician, practitioner, physio, and you're doing that on a day-to-day. And actually, when you then go talk to people in different industries and things, you realize actually the amount of kind of transferable skills that we have, especially around that communication, is really, really varied. And we also get that amazing opportunity, which is what I cannot fault my NHS days of just having um, hours in the bank and just those amount of people that you can get to talk to and have those conversations with that you then gain experience from. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more. The adaptability, you know, I think about outpatient clinics where you'd have a 16-year-old high-performing rugby player come in followed by a 75-year-old person with a knee replacement and you're adapting your communication instantly between those two different different patients and, and that'll happen all day. And you can translate that into a work environment. Um, and and I, again, I just think as clinicians, we underestimate that. So I... Part of my dissertation for my MBA was around um, leadership skills and different and, and actually how well in some of the research shows how well um, allied health professionals more generally are for leadership roles because of this ability around adaptability of communication and things as well. Have you when you go to then, um, I suppose, manage your team, but also hire and employ people for your team and looking at obviously their performance going forward, do you notice any like do you notice the backgrounds or the experiences that people have had and, and what really sets them up well for, for those different experiences? In my most recent role, um, there were quite a lot of uh, ex-physios. There was a little posse of us, actually. Um, what would I say set them apart from others in the organisation? I think it is that confidence in communication um, and that ability to challenge, which I, as a leader, really like. I like to, but I like to think that I build high trust teams that encourages that environment for someone to challenge you. But the way that the physios um, in my team would challenge me was really critically. And again, I think that's embedded into our education, sort of really early on. And I would really welcome those conversations um, critically and with structure. Yeah, really interesting. And and did does that then feed into? How, because there is an element of like, I suppose, natural absorption of different communication skills within teams. Did you see the changing in teams depending on whether you had MSK practitioners or physios in them? Um, potentially. Again, I think that comes from the leadership perspective. Like I would always come in from the outset and say, you know, uh, I'm not fa- I'm not fallible. I'm here to be challenged and and if you disagree with something this is this is the environment I want to create. And I think potentially where it's benefited having sort of like-minded uh, people on the team as well as as you know a di- diverse group of people in the team it's enable to demonstrate that behavior and say actually look Fiona's okay with this. So hopefully that then opened the door for more open communication from other people. But I was also mindful that although some people are very happy to sort of sit there and be very open and challenge you that is just not going to happen for other people. So how do I make that accessible for people who might not want to speak up in a group? Yeah. So I, yes, I think it's good to sort of, it's been good to have those people in the team who can demonstrate that through doing, but also my role is to identify those people who, who don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, most definitely. So your career, as we talked about, has gone through kind of different phases, different transitions. Where do you see your where do you see your, I suppose, your kind of skill set adding the most value going forward? It doesn't need to be a particular kind of brand or company, but what does that environment look like that you feel you personally would um, excel in, but also that is an environment that is attractive to you? What does that look like nowadays? Yeah, I think the itch that hasn't been scratched in my career yet is, is the setting up and running of my own company. Um, you know, I dipped my toe so into startup. Kind of role. Yeah, but yeah. not in. I, I'm not interested in going into that sort of health tech scale up, startup scale up space. 
I think for me, it's I thrive in small organizations. I would be absolutely de delighted to to build a, a small business where I can um, bring people along the journey with me, uh, in, sort of help them along their careers whilst building something fantastic, a business with purpose, which has got which is grounded in all of my values. Um, so watch the space. <laughs> Meanwhile, to pay the bills, we're doing some consultancy work in various, still within the digital health and health tech startup space. What is it, do you think, around small business? Because I hear this quite a lot. And what is it that changes when a business scales? And how do you, what becomes attractive to some people there or not, or you're just, you just stay with it? And what is it about small business for yourself? For me, um, I'm an impatient person. And when you get to large, highly matrix organizations, it's the speed of decision making, uh, which I find quite challenging. And I think that's why I'm quite suited to start up small, small organizations, because I want to test, I want to learn, I want to iterate, I want to fail fast. Um, I want to have a bit of fun. And that, that layered decision making, you know, Holland about is a really great example, you know, that they've got a huge multi-million um, pound turnover a year global organization to get decisions made clearly that that takes time um, and for me I want to move quickly it's in my nature um, but I also want to have the opportunity to develop people and develop and learn in an, in an organization and, and I think within a small organization again that that happens quite quickly so now you know saying it out loud I think speed is is the thing for me and does speed, how do you, slightly, I suppose, more technical, but how do you manage performance when it comes to speed? Because there is a risk always with that. And it's the same kind of with, a, I suppose, a sport analogy from the point of view of once you get to that leap, you're, you're at that tipping point of what goes well and what doesn't go well. Yeah, great question. How um, do you manage that as a leader? I think I've got, had experience of wanting to work at speed and trying to ask the people who do make decisions above me to enable me to be more agile and work at speed. So, if, and, and, and my request to them was, was give me the guardrails. Like if I know where the no-go areas are and I can play and iterate in this space, great. Um, then I can, I can have autonomy and I can crack on. And I think those are the conditions I try and, and establish in my team. You can't stray into this area, you can't stray into this area, but hit, this is the ultimate end game, uh, which again comes from the military. You know, it was the main effort. What is your main effort? Okay. Yeah. These are no-go areas. These are out of bounds, you know, and, and it's similar. And I see that, that that pattern has sort of followed me throughout my career. I think that's a great analogy, but it doesn't also massively, it, there are some similarities there within physio as well from the point of view of, I'm going to, it's, Slight comparison from the point of view of what we, when I did my MACP masters, it was like must shoulds and coulds kind of thing from the yeah. point of view of like what what must I do? Like what is or 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 you can even then relate it to like a rehab plan. What are we aiming to do? What does that look like? What the end vision, the end functional goal, whatever it is that you're working towards, and an element of that obviously still comes down to managing expectations, the communication yeah. that goes with it, and and how you how you, um, what, what does that actually, that process, I suppose, look like? I, I agree. And uh, there are similarities now, having worked with product teams, people who are building tech products, you know, they're very good at it. They will 
um, have daily stand-ups, you know, five, 10 minute meetings every day or, or once a week, whatever works for your organization, they'll have a show and tell. And those give those like checks and balances in order to both give people free reign and autonomy, but also to give people the opportunity to showcase their work. And I think both of those things together is great opportunity for people in your team. Yeah, yeah, sounds it. And, and I suppose just relating that, <clears throat> I'm going to make, it's not an assumption really, but when people, because there is talk a lot, especially in independent practice around recruitment and longevity of practitioners within the space and, and the average being something something really scary. I think it was something like four years or something, really quite yeah. low. And you kind of think, actually, I think some of the most dynamic practitioners and some of the best physios I've kind of come across, they do have this similar skill set that you're talking about from the point of view of kind of proactive, speed, um, goal-driven, outcome-driven, um, enthusiastic elements around that. And, and you just do wonder, does the, is it the profession? Because the patients don't really change and the problems haven't changed over many, many years. Or is it the organization and the hierarchy and the, as you say, the layers of bureaucracy, this, the slowing down of the organization? Is that what kills the kind of fun? <laughs> I think it kills innovation. I think it kills innovation. So what, what becomes then the ideal characteristics of that organization because I, I I know we've touched on this briefly around intrapreneurship instead of entrepreneurship like what can you what can you do within your organization that that harnesses and develops those skills well it, that's a that's a tricky question because I've I've seen how NHS trusts have been have tried to do this and then I've also seen how big corporate organizations like Holland and Barrett have, have tried to do this and I think it can it can happen in in a multi, in number of different ways if we take a big corporate organization and we look at some of the successes to be quite grandiose you know look at the likes of Apple and Disney you know, they have separate innovation arms which have got that ability to work within the guardrail they have their own budgets you know these are your guardrails go and play essentially that mm. could be quite effective because then you're not hindered by cumbersome decision making um and in the nhs you, you know, i think i've seen a number of different different ways they've managed it you know one trust hosts the clinical entrepreneurship program another one was setting up almost like their own sort of dragon's den program but again the, the challenge with with um that latter uh, example of that dragon's den type program is it, it requires resources from inside the organization which as, as we know are just not there at the moment so having external um almost like ring fenced uh organizations or groups of people to innovate uh, i think can be really beneficial yeah yeah most definitely well maybe that should be your next business <laughs> <laughs> nervous laugh <laughs> Fiona, it's been amazing speaking to you uh, and sharing some of your insights around um, the experiences that you've had across different sectors, as I say, from healthcare to military to sport to startups to large organizations, the clinical crossing over to the MBA commercial um, and what that starts to look like. And I suppose my biggest kind of takeaway really is around that um, individuality of it so I think there's that element of kind of self-awareness and knowing and knowing what's what's going on there uh, and, and what drives you um, and therefore then being able to kind of match that with an organization or an environment that allows you to perform um, because that's what ultimately 
I, I suppose, strive for, but you hope people look for is how can I do, how can I do this to the best of my ability? Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Nicola. That's been brilliant. Thank you, Fiona. Well, that was the first episode of Chewing Over High Performance. Personally, I found it really insightful to understand from Fiona's wide range of experience had the different themes and principles around performance that are important to her. We touched on topics such as recovery, resilience and reflective practice, as well as discussed psychological safety, expectations, self-awareness and adaptive and effective communication. I hope you enjoyed that episode and next month I will be joined by Reese Carter. Reese is one of the co-founders of Carter and George Physiotherapy Practices in Hertfordshire. He has a pretty unique business relationship as his business partner is Jamie George, the current England rugby team captain. That episode will be specifically around data and Reese's approach to using data within performance management in his pretty fast growing physiotherapy business. I hope you enjoy that conversation and I look forward to sharing it with you. Here at Physio Matters, we think physio matters. Become a member today and access the biggest MSK library on the planet. Access at home, work or in the gym to make sure your CPD conditioning is elite. Physio-matters.com. More content than will fit on a deadlift bar.